Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Freedom. We're here with today. We're here with Pernay Parikh. He is with the Ascent Equity Group. Pernay is an MD. He specializes in working with other MDs through a syndication. And this guy is absolutely crushing it on the real estate market. In the past 16 months, they've acquired over $200 million in volume. So thank you so much for joining us, Pernay. I would love to just kick it off. Obviously, you're buying a ton of properties. Could you tell us one of the craziest real estate stories or transactions that you've ever faced? Yeah, you know, this happened uh, pretty recently. So everyone probably knows how crazy the debt market is. Mortgage rates have gone up. It really doubled in the past couple months, which is wild. You know, we were in the twos for years and years and years, and now we're in the fives and sixes. So we we raised all the money for this deal. We told everyone we're you're going to get an X return. You know, it's projections, but we try to stick to it. And literally the day before we're going to close, the loan company says, "You know what? Uh, interest rates have gone up a lot. We're going to add fifty basis points or." 0.5% to your interest rate. And it was, uh, I think it was like four or something. So 0.5 is a significant amount, right? It's almost a 10% increase literally the day before. Uh, and, you know, it sounds like they can't do that, but they can because they were doing it to everyone. So it's hard to argue. And what are you going to say? Uh, I need to come up with 80% of my money. So we spent the whole day negotiating with them. And we were able to get them not to do that. But we had something called interest. Yeah, yeah, I know. We're super lucky. And uh, But we had something called interest reserve, uh, which is awesome. It's uh, something new that a lot of institutions like Goldman Sachs, Blackstone do. But basically, they get a, a little bit larger loan, just a smaller, like a half percent larger loan. And you use that to pay off all the interest rate, all the interest for the first year. So. Basically, you have zero chance of defaulting because you already paid off your interest rate. So that's something that we had to give up um, to get that. Uh, and so our our uh, default rate went up, right? Because it went from zero to a little bit. So we went back to the drawing board and we're like, hey, we got to tell our investors, like, this sucks. Like, we told them you're going to get almost a zero default risk in the year one. And now it's, you know, a very small percentage, but it's higher than zero. So we decided as a group that we're going to put up our own money for that interest reserve where, you know, we have it in the bank and we're kind of cover all the payments just in case. So we're, uh, so then they still have that default risk. And we also sent an email. We're like, Hey, if this changes your mind, we'll give you guys a full refund. No questions asked. We'll cover your fees. And then we just sit there sit, staring at our email boxes, just hitting refresh nonstop to see how many people uh, ask for a refund. But, you know, I think if you have integrity, honesty, uh, one person uh, asked for a refund, and I think she was kind of on the fence in the first place. But out of our 300 investors, 300, only one person asked for a refund. And it wasn't a problem. We had a big wait list, and we just filled that up pretty quick. So just to kind of dive in, because our audience is on generally on the newer investing scale. So essentially, last minute, your rate has changed. So in the commercial big 
rate lock and spectrum, your rate essentially doesn't get locked in at the beginning. It sounds like it gets locked in at the very end. Is that, is that accurate? So it, it, so what you're saying, it used to be like that. So, um, we realize in the market, it, it's changing so much. You're learning on a daily basis. We kept asking for, uh, the, the rate log, the term sheet, they kind of, we kind of kept tugging our chain, you know, and day we ask, we asked every day we were, they were like, yeah, it's coming. It's coming. It's good. You know, it's going to be close to what your first rate is. They kind of give a, a preliminary one. So it's, it's just say 4.3 or something. And they're like, yeah, it's going to be close. It's going to be close. We're more paperwork, more paperwork. We're like, Hey guys, we're closing tomorrow. They're like, Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty close. It's four points, uh, 4.8, you know, and that's a significant difference. So normally you're right. They do. But these days, because rates are changing so quickly, they're going to wait till the very last minute because they want to give you the highest rate. Totally. I see what you're saying. So talk about the challenge of that. You have 300 people wanting to invest money with you. You have to make projections, which are incredibly difficult to make anyways, because you're buying these multi-million dollar deals that have all these variables. What kind of challenge does that add to your guys's role? And then how do you counter that challenge when the banks don't even want to give you the interest rate, which is a huge factor in your expense ratio. Yeah. So there is something called a sensitivity analysis where you look at, uh, we call it doomsday scenarios, but we looked at what is the current rate? Let's add two or 3% to it. And so, you know, if it was 4.3, let's add six to seven. If that happened, you know, you know, normally you wouldn't do that, but now potentially we could go up two to 3% in the, in the next three to four years, right? So how does that make our projections look? So we do that. Let's um, let's also put in no rent growth or flat rent growth. Let's also put in all this other stuff. So it's a nice little chart. So if this, then that. And if it still makes sense, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to give you a 20% return if interest rates go up to 7%. But if I can give you a 5% return, a 6%, even some something positive when rates are going crazy. Because imagine if rates go up 3%, stock market's probably not going to be looking very hot. It's already not looking hot. You know, crypto is not going to be looking hot. So anything that's in the positives in that scenario is good. So we really try to chop it up. Like what's the worst case? Actually, let me give you an example. So, uh, we look at occupancy and vacancy occupancy, how many people are staying right and paying vacancy, how many rooms are empty. So we looked at for our last deal, we looked at historical worst vacancy. So what is the worst vacancy in the past 30 years, um, that we had data. So it was about 9%, which is great. So we said, let's see what happens if we double it, 18%. Let's see what happens if we triple it, 27%. And our break-even occupancy, meaning how much people, how much rooms have to be lived in and paid for to cover all our expenses, to cover all our costs. And it was 66%. So we had a buffer of about 7%. So you know, 27 to 34% of vacancy um, and that makes us feel pretty good. So the worst ever in the past 30 years, and we're tripling that. So, you know, could it get worse than that? Yeah, potentially it could. But if it does, we're probably going to be worried about a lot more stuff than our real world collapsing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So when you're making your projections, you're warning these worst case scenarios on occupancy, on expenses of if you're doing value add projects where you're taking the buildings and making them better, then you have rate projections, all of these things factor. Do you take the worst scenario and pitch that out to your investors on every element? Or do you take like the midline? How do you form your projections that you give to your investors? Yeah, that's a great question. I So what we do is we get mm, somewhere between, you know, if zero is the worst case ever and 10 is probably the last couple of years, best scenario ever. Right, market lift, everything's th- going good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're probably in the three to four. Uh, the problem with always presenting the worst case scenario is that other people don't do that, right? So no one is going to go into your deal if you're predicting, you know, we always predict uh, like a 14 to 16% IRR when we really think it's going to be 20 plus. But if everyone else is predicting a 25, most people are going to just look at that number and not really dig deeper. So we can't be super duper conservative. And we have gotten more conservative over time because we've grown an investor base and they know that we always outplay our projections, but we can't, we can't be on the zero side. So we do three or four, but we never try to pass that five. We never want to be past the midline because uh, our projections are always that when we try to sell the property, it's the market's always going to get worse. How do you see your projections changing now markets changing as you mentioned interest rates are rising it appears maybe there's going to be some issues in vacancies as these mass layoffs with among major corporations start to tick up corporations are rescinding offers does that affect your guys's projections at all does it move you closer to a one or two how does that factor in uh, i don't think so because uh three and four kind of assumes all that. The The nice thing about the type of investments that we do, we do apartments, they're called class B, kind of middle of the ground workforce, you know, normal blue collar uh, housing. So the right now, a lot of people are getting priced out of buying houses. They've been saving up and mortgage payments. So let me give you an example. My house, my house that I bought last year, 2.37%. I know, super great interest rate. Uh, I know. I don't. But the, for the same house, the same house, it's a three thousand dollars extra, and it's not you know it's not some like four million dollar house. It's a normal house, but three thousand dollars extra per month, right? No one, no one can really afford that, and that's money that's gone. It's not going to your principal. That's money that's going straight to the bank, right? So there's people that are being priced out and where do they go? They go to the apartments. They, they were planning on moving out or maybe they're renting the house and they go down to apartments. Or there's people uh, who maybe they live in downtown, they live in Manhattan, they live in the really nice apartments. And they say, you know, the market's not getting so hot. Maybe I should downgrade a little bit and then upgrade later on. So they downgrade to our types of apartments. Uh, but when the economy is doing well, like it has the five the past like 10 years uh the people that are living in like i live in la like crenshaw inglewood they'll decide to upgrade so it's it's called the goldilocks class because it's people will go into it so yeah you know if there's really bad uh 
layoffs, you know, maybe a small dip in vacancy or sorry, occupancy or increase in vacancy. But even in 2008, these types of apartments, they did very well because that's where people go into. Love it. Take us back to your journey, your journey becoming a, a doctor of internal medicine. And then what led you even beyond that into becoming a syndicator of real estate? Yeah. So when I was when I was in college, I actually had a ton of different interests. I um, really liked cars. I really liked art, and kind of had to sacrifice a lot of that um, to get into med school, as you'd imagine. You know, in med school, I did some charity art shows, but really nothing, nothing too crazy. Uh, then I graduated. I did residency. And then I did even less. So after I became a full-fledged doctor, I kind of wanted to go back into some of the stuff that I was really interested in. Um, so I did a lot of reading. I wanted to control my financial life. So I had all these loans. I didn't really know what to do with money. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a little scary, right? I, I had this paycheck. I didn't know what to do. Uh, so I, I did a lot of reading. I went on bigger pockets, like probably a lot of your audience has done. And uh, I worked a lot. I worked almost 300 hours a month. I worked a lot. You know, I paid off all my loans, um, made enough for a down payment, and I bought my first four unit in uh, about 14 months out of residency, which is pretty decent. Uh, I can stop you for a second. 300 hours a month. I just want to put that in a little bit of perspective here. That's 75 hours a week, give or take. That's a lot of hours. It's almost two, two. Like, what is driving you? to work 75 hours a week. Yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, when you want to when you want to take control of your life, you have to make some sacrifices, right? And so a, a lot of uh so there's this uh famous doctor who does a lot of finance called um White Coat Investors is brand name. And he talks about living like a resident. So, you know, when we are residents, we don't really spend much money. We live in a small apartment. And um, I did that, but I wanted to live a little, you know, so I got a nicer apartment. And I, in residency, I was working 26, 12-hour shifts a month. That was normal. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So more than and 300 hours. So, yeah. So it was so normal that... When you get a weekend off, it's called golden weekend because it's so rare. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and it's like uh, once a month or like once a quarter or something? Once a, yeah, once a month, you get two grays. So you work either a Saturday or Sunday, and then you get one black where you're working straight. So you're working five days in a week, all weekend, and another five days before potentially you get one day off. And then you work another five days and then another one day off. So it's pretty intense. So if I was working 26 days and surviving for three years, which was what residency was, I thought, you know, if I go down at 20 to 22, that's still a big improvement in quality of life. And if I did it for a little bit longer, it's going to suck, but I would have just such a complete different change in life. It would change the trajectory of my life, right? It's all about compound interest. The more money I made in the beginning of my career, uh, I work a lot less now, a lot less. Um, but I think that's that really helped me kind of change. And you you build habits and you get used to it. Um, you know, not to say it wasn't tough. It was hard to kind of balance like time with my girlfriend who became my wife and family and stuff. But I, I think financially, uh, it helped us a ton. And now I'm able to spend a lot more time with my family and my young son. 
I love this. And, and I want to get Tim, I want to get your insight on this too. I had a period in my life where I didn't have a choice, but to work a lot of hours. I was in a new teaching job. We had a child that went into the hospital. Thank goodness for doctors like you that saved her life. And I was in the teaching credential program while I was teaching. So it ended up working out to about 300 and 350 hours uh, a month for about six months. And it was like the most insane time of my life, as I'm assuming your residency time was too. But it's like once you've experienced that for an extended period of time, like your life is forever different in the sense that like you can't go back to a 40 hour work week and feel the same about it. It's like 40 hours feels like part time. Can you kind of talk about that in the sense of because that's what I'm hearing you saying is that essentially you working so much made working that much a lot easier. What were some of maybe the other benefits that you experienced? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, honestly, if you look at, if you call working, you know, and right now this is, it's fun, but it is working, right? So it's talking about the brand and all that stuff. So if you consider it, I probably work well over a hundred hours, but it's, it's fun, you know, and, uh, we can talk about this late, a little bit later. I think having a lot of different things you can do just brings that excitement back. If I was doing 300 hours of medicine, no doubt I'd be burnt out. And that's, I definitely don't recommend doing that for more than, I did that about a year. What my what my goal was, was to cut down about two shifts a month every six months. So in the starting, it doesn't feel like a lot, but you know, two, three years in there, and then you're working like 10 shifts a month, which is great. But now I work, I have a couple of different brands. So I have a Scent Equity Group. I work for uh, this other brand called Passive Income MD. I have a podcast from MD to Entrepreneur, which is fun. Uh, and I jump on podcasts like this. So if you consider it, you know, work, it's uh, probably 80 to 100 hours, but I don't feel like it. I, I, it feels like a lot of fun. It feels like a lot of um, excitement. And I get to work with friends. I get to meet really interesting people like the both of you. And it doesn't feel like work. But I think a lot of times, if I hadn't done that in the past and hadn't worked so hard, then maybe it would have been. And, you know, a lot of times, like, you know, uh, <laughs> there's there's uh, some rumors that people get paid for being on podcasts. I can tell you I've never been paid <laughs> right. to get on a podcast. <laughs> you know, uh, I've never paid anyone to be on a podcast. Uh, but it's, it's just fun. And uh, it's having that perseverance, that resilience uh, to do all that in the starting. And the other thing is probably like your teaching career. I learned a ton just becoming a better doctor working that hard, you know, and uh, I was just, especially in the beginning where, when, even though I was a full-fledged doctor, I had a lot to learn. So I was able to put my skills really to the test. Tim, I know you've had some pretty crazy periods in life too, where you've ran really, really fast. Yeah. And then if you want to share some of your insights on that. Well, absolutely. Like you were saying, I mean, once you've had a period of time where like for me, it was, oh God, it was probably 18 months where I was working 80 to a hundred hours a week, every single week. And it's just like, once you have that type of a time frame, and, and you adjust to it, right? Because the human body and the human mind can adjust essentially to anything. Anything that you do consistently becomes normal. It's like now, I mean, I often work 60 to 80 hours a week and, and it feels like I'm not working that much because I'm, I used to work like almost 20 hours a day. It was nuts. Um, and, 
And it's just crazy the way that the mindset adjusts. So, I mean, I would love to get into this. Like, like when you jumped into it, like you just started residency. Like, how was the shock of that? Like the being thrown into the fire? How long did it take you to adjust to that schedule? And like, what kind of coping mechanisms did you adapt in order to do so? Yeah, you know, a lot of uh, medicine is just kind of throw people in there and see how they do. Uh, and that's why there's such a rigorous... Uh, screening, right? It's so hard to get into medicine because uh, that it's difficult. The training is difficult. So, you know, when I was in medical school, uh, I would do a lot of studying, a lot of reading. And I think because of all the kind of self-imposed strictness that I had, that getting into residency wasn't as difficult or doing residency and coping with that wasn't as difficult because I was already spending you know, 12 to 14 hour days focused on medicine. Uh, it was a lot of doing it self-imposed, uh, but in uh, in residency, uh, I did say, you know, the last couple months of uh, medical school were um, normally pretty chill. So I did a lot of vacation and stuff. And I, I think that helped me kind of recharge to start three years. Perfect. Um, I would actually love to get into this. So you were a hospitalist, right? So essentially you were the doctor at the hospital assisting with people. Like what kind of skill set did you develop there that you feel transferred over to real estate? Because I'm sure this is going to be a very interesting answer. Yeah. So, you know, and uh, this is uh, where a lot of doctors uh, underestimate themselves. And uh, the I work with a lot of doctors who want to be entrepreneurs, want to be real estate investors. And a lot of times they'll come up to me and say, oh, I'm just a doctor. I'm just a doctor. I'm just a dentist. I'm just a pharmacist. But to get through that grueling training, uh, and, you know, it's not just us lawyers. There's plenty of people, teachers for sure, uh, that go through that training. But it's skills, learning. Um, so, for example, having to teach myself, um, that is a skill that I've learned uh, being able to go through misinformation. Um, so, you know, picking up real estate was actually pretty simple. I just picked up a couple books and I talked to a lot of people and you can get 80% of the way there. And the rest of the 20% is just doing, right? So uh, negotiating. Uh, I have to convince people to take big, huge pills every day, sometimes <laughs> twice a day, sometimes four <laughs> times a day. Taking pills sucks, you know. I, I I forget every once in a while I have to take something. I'll, I'll be like, did I take it? I don't remember. You know, um, getting people to stop addictions, right? Uh, heroin, uh, meth, uh, alcohol, right? Um, and other uh, losing weight, right? It's all these difficult conversations that we try to avoid. Um, but I try to. Um, I. Uh, I worked nights and I, I still do, but I worked nights um, back in the starting uh, and our hospital didn't have intensive care doctors. So critical care doctors. So basically I was it. So I had a ton of end of life conversations with people. Uh, and a lot of that is just, you know, bedside manner. And they don't really teach you that in medical school because it's, it's an art. Right. And so uh, a lot of that talking to people, uh, you know, uh, for example, last night, um, our, we had a glitch on one of, on our portal, um, and someone's, uh, someone's, uh, investment, just the amount had changed. And, you know, I talked to him at like 9 30 PM. I'm like, Hey, this happens. Like, don't worry. We have all these systems based. Like we, we have everyone's 
investment amount in a ledger, like completely separate outside of our portal. We're like, yeah, we'll get this fixed in the next day. But they were understandably freaking out because they're worried that their money could have disappeared, right? Uh, so being able to talk that per- talk to that person, understand where they're coming from. Uh, and I think there's a lot, you know, uh, not to say that all the real estate is easy, but at some point it's just it's numbers, right? You can figure that stuff out or you can hire experts, but it's these conversations that you have with people that are really giving you their hard earned money. Um, that is what helps different. Wow. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. I wouldn't have thought about that. That's so cool. The conversations you're having with people that yeah, the family after someone's passed or with the person before they die is a similar skill to giving the bad news about the interest rates rising. So is it the tonalities? What would you say about that? That's really the, the key skill. Say that uh, real estate is um, as deep, as profound, or as, as, you know, end of life conversations, but it's, it's putting your, it's that empathy that you develop and putting yourself in someone else's shoes, right? And so if someone is giving you $25,000, $50,000, for you, it might just be literally 1% of the money you're raising, right? And this, a, a lot of bigger deals, our deals are anywhere from 30 to $70 million, uh, while other people do deals in the $200 millions or so. For them, it's, it's chump change, right? And a lot of times you feel that, you know, you feel like a small piece of their bigger uh, of their bigger deal, but you know, at the hospital, a lot of times you're telling people even something. Uh, let's get a little bit less uh, morbid. Um, telling someone they have diabetes, right? That sucks. Diabetes is life altering. It's it's not a deadly disease. It's a chronic disease, but it, it kind of sucks. Like I don't want diabetes, right? I don't want hypertension, even though it's the most common disease out there. But telling someone that, it could be the 10th person you tell that to in a day. But to them, it's brand new. So, you know, sitting down, talking to them, asking them about what their thoughts are, whether they're feeling, uh, what do they know about the disease, right? And it's the same thing. Later today, I'm going to be talking about uh, when it, about holding distribution. So distributions are the returns uh, we give out. But a lot of people 
uh, including us on some of our deals, were uh, not giving out money for this quarter because of all the changes in uh, the interest rates and just trying to hold more money um, for a rainy day and talking to people and explaining why that's happening. And, you know, sometimes it's not a good thing. It means the property is doing very poorly and they have to do that. Uh, for us, it's more of a preemptive thing, but, you know, they don't know that. So I'm going to jump on a kind of a Zoom live and talk to people and ask all and hear all their questions and answer them to the best of my ability. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I actually have a very specific question for you. So, I mean, I, as, as a doctor, right, you have to reverse engineer a lot of problems, right? Somebody comes with you with a set of symptoms and obviously you have tests that you can do, but there's also, there's, there's an art form to it as well as a science. So, I mean, my question to you specifically, because I've been misdiagnosed many times before and before I used to just get upset or they tell me like, I don't know what's wrong with you. And, and at, at the time, I was like, oh, no, like, I don't know what's wrong with me. But in retrospect, it was like, I had the wrong doctor. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, um, could you walk me through, like, how you troubleshoot in order to try to figure out what the problem is and, and just how you reverse engineer something like that when somebody comes into the hospital? Yeah. So for, you know, and you're right, it depends on the type of doctor you have. So my parents will come to me. They're like, hey, my foot hurts. I don't know what it is. Uh, they're like, don't you want to hear what it is? I was like, I don't care what you tell me. Like, I'm not going to know what it is because I don't deal with that type of medicine. And even if I try to remember back in medical school, when I learned all that stuff, I would probably potentially misdiagnose them. And I don't want that. I want them to take care of this by someone who knows, you know, they deal with non-serious foot injuries, for example, right? Uh, for me, my job is to make sure are you dying or not? Okay, so are you dying? No, uh, yes. Then we need, to, we need to do something right now, right? Um, it is, right? We need to send you to ICU. We need to send intensive care unit. We need to get the drugs on, antibiotics. We need to, you know, we need to move quick, right? And our systems are built for that. Or um, do you need a couple days in the hospital where we can get you better? And it's stuff that you can't, take care of at home. So maybe you need some IV, so medications through your veins that, you know, we can't do those at home. We can do pills at home, but we, you know, the IV stuff um, needs to be done in the hospital. Maybe we need to make sure you're doing okay, but things could potentially get worse. Like maybe you have a bad infection and we just want to watch you for a couple of days. So that's the kind of stuff I deal with, right? And if something goes out of that wheelhouse, so a lot of times people will be like, I can't walk like this, like my foot really hurts and it probably looks like a sprain. Uh, but there's, you know, there's nothing we can really do about that. Um, tell you to go to a kind of maybe a sports doctor or family doctor, give you some crutches, but you know, it's not something that we really can do because it just gets better over time. But we, we can tell that we, we can do an x-ray make sure your foot's not broken and that kind of stuff. Cause that would be serious, right? We don't want you walking on a broken foot. But um, more kind of the sprains, uh, you know, the other day I was uh, lifting some weights and I hurt my back pretty bad and I, I like couldn't bend over. I'm like, this sucks. And uh, I, I like had my wife like stand on my back and she's like, maybe you should go doctor. I'm like, yeah, they're not going to do anything. Uh, just take some like Motrin and it got better. I did a lot of stretches, uh, but you know, it just depends and it, it sucks. It sucks not having an answer or having the wrong answer. Uh, but a lot of times it's, 
it, it should make you feel good that, okay, it's not a heart attack. Like you're having chest pain. It's not a heart attack. It's not a hole in your esophagus. You know, you're not having a blood clot or something like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of that, uh, those skills of deduction, um, is what really helps us like in real estate and entrepreneurship, just having that focus. Cause really in the long run, what, what are we doing? We're finding problems and trying to solve them. So one thing I, I find interesting, I'm hearing you kind of say it, and I definitely hear it amongst real estate agents and pretty much every profession that we deal with, which is essentially you go in, you study really hard, you become an expert in this field, but then you're still out searching for freedom. You're out to search how to reduce the shifts. So can you describe why do you think that is that most doctors are looking to get into real estate to scale down their practices and what's your definition of freedom? Yeah, I think, I think there's a spectrum. So you guys might've heard the epidemic of burnout and it's uh, rampant through medicine. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, it's not really the doctor's fault. It's moral. It's called moral injury where they have too much administrative work. They are having to see more patients with less time, you know, and it hurts them because they want to really take care of the full patient. So uh, I'm not saying that you can solve that by entrepreneurship, but if you were able to cut down your shifts or say, you know, I'm willing to take a pay cut to spend more time with my patient, uh, or, you know, I know I need to see X amount of patients to get this amount of money, but I'm okay with seeing less to get less money, right? So I think uh, either entrepreneurship or investing correctly, you can shape your medical career into something that's sustainable. And for some people, it's one shift a, month, uh, a week, you know, two shifts, three shifts, or maybe it's working at the free clinic or, uh, you know, it just varies. Or for some people, you know, some people like my cousin, who's a neonatologist, uh, she works it with little preemie babies. She did 24 hour shifts. Those are brutal, brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, maybe she says, I don't want to do 24 hour shifts anymore. Right. But you take a, a financial burden of that. So if you're able to kind of supplement your income elsewhere, um, then you can, you don't have to do those shifts. And there's probably people like me when I first started, I would have taken, I was like 24 hours, you've done, done double time, triple time. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. 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 And I would take everyone's extra shifts. I'd get mad if I got less than 20. I was like, what are you guys doing? I'm going to find another job. <laughs> You're like hyped up on like energy drinks and whatnot, or how'd you, how'd you get through? Yeah. <laughs> you know, surprisingly, I don't drink caffeine at oh. all. Yeah. Yeah. I don't drink any caffeine. Um, what I like to do, I actually work out right before my shift. Um, like a good 45 minutes hour of weightlifting. And then I feel great. Yeah. That's crazy. I'd like to get in your diet too. I mean, you're working 20 hour shifts. Like to me, a workout would be great, but like, is that going to sustain for it? Like a 20 hour shift? Like yeah. Well, I would, yeah. I mean, uh, most of my shifts are 12 hours and the nice thing about nights is, um, and my sleep schedule is very unique. I'll try to get a couple hours of sleep at the hospital if possible. I'm kind of a zombie if I don't. And then I get a couple hours of sleep at home. So it ends up being, about eight or nine hours actually in total, but because it's not continuous, it's not super great sleep. But um, in that sense, I'm able to somewhat function. And uh, it's not, you know, as a doctor, I can't suggest that because <laughs> sleep is very important to you. 
uh, and to people in general. So, uh, but you know, it's some sacrifices that I was willing to make to kind of get my goals. Totally. Yeah. Limited period of time type of mentality. Yeah, And you know, you were asking about freedom. I think freedom is to, to me, to be able to kind of be anywhere, work anywhere, um, and whatever hours I want. So, uh, can't say I have total freedom right now. Uh, I'm almost there. Um, but there's also some of that it's, it's that plus the lifestyle I want, right? So if I wanted to sacrifice the lifestyle that I wanted, then I probably would have gotten there a long time ago. It's kind of, you guys have heard of the fat fire, you know, financial independence, retire early. And then the fat one is the you know, normal fires like living off 50 to a hundred grand, but I'd like to live, I'd like to go on vacations and live in a decent house. You know, I live in LA, so cost of living just in general is a lot more expensive. So how do you define that fat fire for yourself as far as, are you looking at it as a cash flow number? Are you looking at it as a certain amount of liquidity in the bank? How do you determine for yourself what retirement looks like? Yeah, so there was a there was a pretty funny article uh, that came out recently that said like twenty five percent or fifteen percent of people that make over two fifty thousand a year live on paycheck to paycheck, and I definitely count as one of those uh, because pretty much pretty much every dollar that I have over I don't know like ten k um, I have invested. So you know, once I get to a certain amount, like the bucket gets full, I invest it. And then I fill up the other bucket. So I don't have a ton of cash and I don't plan on having a ton of cash, but you're right. Exactly. Cash flow is, is king, right? Because that's that's what you live off of. And that's how you replace your salary uh, with cash flow. So um, once I get that to cover all my expenses plus a little bit, I, then uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's what I would call freedom. Awesome. So dialing back a little bit, I'm just going to make a comment real quick. You mentioned how important sleep is. And that's something that me personally, I've avoided my whole life because I've I've always had trouble sleeping. Like as an insomniac, it's just like, whatever, people say sleep's important, but I could work without it. But as I've aged, you know, I mean, there's the fundamentals of, of eating healthy, exercising and sleep. And I'm finding that sleep is actually by far and it's not even close. Um, the most important out of those factors. Like if I manage my sleep schedule, I could control my mood and everything else much better. Um, so that's more of a comment than anything. I would love to just ask you the big question, right? Because you said you were talking about entrepreneurship. You're looking to retire. Why did you choose real estate to be the medium of your retirement? Because obviously you're, you're having a successful practice already. So like, why was real estate the direction you chose? Yeah. So, uh, you know, actually to finish off my story, uh, that we started earlier. So I bought that four unit, uh, and it was cash flowing well in LA of all places. And the plan was to buy another property every year. So, you know, in 10 years, I'd have 10 properties I'd retire. The problem was that after the first property, it just became very difficult to find anymore. Um, and I was spending hundreds of hours looking at properties, Zillow, Redfin, you know, talking and real estate agents. And then I found passive investing. So syndications like I do in a cent equity group and I get 85, 90% of the returns with like 5% of the work, even less. It takes about an hour or two to vet the deal. And then I invest and I just wait for the paycheck to come in. So now I'm, uh, other than that first property, I only have, so that's four units. 
all the rest of my money is in passive investing, either through uh, Ascend Equity Group or other sponsors. So it's it's nice. I feel that it's the right answer for most doctors because they because real estate itself can really feel like a second job. And if you want to do it right and create a real estate empire and retire early, you really got to treat it like a second job. Marketing, build up a team, uh, you know accounting, all that good stuff. And it's just not something I'd want to do because it made a lot more sense for me to work more, which I did. Um, so I was, uh, so in the starting, it was all about where do I put my money? So I'm making, you know, decent money. I had paid off my loans. What do I do with my money? And, uh, then I found passive investing, but there wasn't someone that did it at the level that I wanted to do. So, you know, unfortunately, I had to create myself, uh, which I was looking for a long time for to find someone else that did it to the level that I wanted. But because no one did, we had to create it ourselves. Totally. And so to kind of piggyback on Tim's question, what was the draw to real estate as opposed to putting the money in the stock market or some other yeah. form of investing? So, so the nice thing about real estate is it's, money in your pocket every month, right? And it's tax deferred and tax deferred for like 30 years. So when I was thinking about cash flow, real estate is all about cash flow, right? So if I invested in, let's say IBM or Apple, right? Yeah, it's going up like crazy. Tesla is going up like crazy, but I only get cash flow if I sell, right? And how do you figure out when to sell? It's hard. Uh, you know, other people would say, okay, what about Coca-Cola? They have a dividend stock. And you're right. Uh, syndications are very much like dividend stocks. However, dividend stocks are taxed at your marginal rate. So for me, living in California, that's 50%, right? So if they give me a, if Coca-Cola gives me a dollar, I get 50 cents of it. While if a syndication gives me a dollar, I get to keep all of it. Um, and it's tax deferred. So basically the government is giving me a loan for the taxes and then, you know, eventually I have to pay taxes, but you know, there's some interesting ways to kick the can down the line and potentially never pay taxes on it. Uh, and that's only possible through real estate. So key highlight there is all the benefits of the stock market as far as appreciating assets, like stock values going up. Dividends are in your form of rental income, so you get that too, probably better than most dividends that are paying. Plus, the big kicker is you're not going to pay much, if any taxes at all, on the gains. And if you pay them, it's going to be way down the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And our um, so uh, one of the one of the benefits of having an active, so owning your own property, is the possibility of 1031. So 1031, very briefly, it's a code in the taxes that says if you buy another property that's more expensive and similar to your old property, you don't pay any taxes on those gains. And you do it again and you do it again. So some of our deals, not all of them, are 1031 eligible. That means we can take all the money from that deal when it sells and put it into another deal and not pay any taxes. So you get to do all of that, but we do all the work for you. That is so cool. So let's let's talk about acquisition strategies and what you're doing on that in in that avenue right so i mean we we talk on the phone a little bit you mentioned you're targeting florida texas and arizona specifically because they're low tax or no tax states but other what other acquisitions opportunities are you looking for like yeah so our goal is to partner with the best operator. So, you know, all three of us principals are doctors. We have, you know, a pretty good amount, you know, 
probably over 15 years of real estate experience between us, a ton of asset management. But, you know, we, we need boots on the ground. And, you know, just like if I had a very serious heart disease, I'd probably want to go to a cardiologist and not just a regular doctor like myself. Right. Even though I know most of that stuff, I'd, I'd be happy to send them to a specialist. And we're the same way. So because of our kind of unique value proposition, we're able to partner with some of the best in the industry. And we're able to do that because we bring all the money into the deal. So uh, most people that do real estate hate the money part of it. They hate raising money. That's not their skill set. Their skill set is, you know, picking out what tile, raising rents, talking to uh, tenants, right? Not talking to investors. It's a different skill set. So if we say we're going to bring in 97%, um, cause we want the, uh, part, our partner to have a little skin in the game, then they, we are able to work with pretty much anyone in the industry, but even within their deals, we're able to cherry pick their best. So for example, our last deal, um, it just closed a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it had uh, a fixed interest rate of 2.9% fixed for nine years, which is wild. All the other interest rates are like in the sixes. Uh, and it has four years of interest only. So we only pay interest uh, for those. And we were able to pick that deal out of their portfolio because of our partnership and all the value we bring to them. So the nice thing about us is that people bring us deals and we kind of are able to cherry pick within them. So we don't have to go out. We don't have, uh, we have an acquisitions team, but our acquisition team doesn't really go out, talk to brokers and stuff. People bring us deals and they say, hey, do you want to partner with us uh, on this? Interesting. So as opposed to you know, a broker getting a commission, you're bringing in an operator that it becomes a partner. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and we do, uh, the type of structure we have is called a joint venture because we're really working hand in hand. Uh, and we have something called major decision rights where we get to decide pretty much everything. We typically don't. Uh, but it means we get to have input. Um, important things that we decide and we like having input in is leverage, who they go with the debt, how much debt, you know, how much money they keep in the bank, uh, what type of scope do they do for renovations, what type of returns are they trying to aim for, when do they sell their property. Um, and we get to have all that type of input um, because we are actual partners and we're not just raising a little bit of money and be a small. Let's dig a little bit deeper into this. Um, so what differentiates you and your company between other similar types of syndications? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a great point. And this is something that we have slowly figured out over time because, you know, these are all private companies. No one says, okay, here's how it works. Right. So uh, our very first deal, we did that. We did a small piece of this, $200 million deal. And we were happy to do that. It's a great partner and the deal is killing it. But we decided that we wanted to be a larger piece. We wanted to be a partner. We didn't want to just say, okay, here's the money and we disappear. So we have a full asset management team, meaning that we talk to the property managers, um, the ones that are running the show, um, doing the day to day. We talk to them every week and, um, that's very rare for someone like us, you know, who brings the money, who raises money. We look at the financials every week or two. Um, we go look at the property minimum in person, minimum every quarter. Sometimes we go as much as every two weeks to go look at it. So we basically are working like we're doing our own syndication, uh, but we have someone who is a pro that is running it. So 
we basically managed a manager and I, that's what I was looking for when I first started investing. I wanted to invest with someone that knew what they were doing, like the operators that we partner with, but I didn't want to keep an eye on them. And, you know, I didn't want to look at what they're doing. I want to follow them. I want zero thinking because I have so much else in my life that I wanted to focus on. So it's really like a concierge bespoke uh, experience that we give to our investors. You, you invest with us. And then we, not only that, we invest with different sponsors and we have a nice uh, diversified portfolio to be for you to be able to invest in. And then, you know, we're super available. If you ever, like last night, I talked to someone at 930. Every once in a while, I'll get a phone call and people will be surprised that I pick up. Like, oh, I thought I was going to get an associate or, you know, a voicemail. I was like, no, like, you know, whatever I can, I'm happy to talk to people and kind of explain what's going on. Super cool. And so in some ways, you're almost functioning as a broker of operators where your main position is just making sure the clients that are giving you the money are happy and making sure essentially that the deals are going well. Yeah. So we, so yes, it's really, um, we, we almost see, feel like we're like venture capital for people that have experience with venture capital. So, you know, we invest in the deal, we create a partnership, but you know, it's almost like we have a seat at the board, you know, we're making sure they're doing the right thing. We're talking to their leaders every week and we're making sure that they are maximizing the profit for our investors. Pranay, so that's, a, that's absolutely fantastic information. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, so what is your vision Let's say over the next twelve to twenty-four months, like how do you want to grow this? Like where do you want to go with it? We have we have grown really tremendously. So our first year we did uh, about twenty million. This year we're um, at forty million already. We probably would have raised. We probably would have been at sixty to eighty had you know not all the COVID happened um, and all that stuff and interest rates and stuff. Uh, so we really want to be the best real estate investment. For, for doctors, dentists, and not just the best real estate investment led by doctors. No, the best real estate investment vehicle, period. So we are building out the systems um, that we have uh, that we haven't seen elsewhere. Um, so we want to just give it more opportunities. So, you know, we just hired a director of inter investor relations so we can really, even, even though we have pretty great communications to improve that, we had... Uh, Asset manager, which a lot of people have told us is really the best in the game. And um, we're considering looking at some other asset classes. So right now we do value-add multifamily. But we're looking to see if there's some interest in other stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, we're just, you know, we're growing. Um, we're providing a ton of value. And I once we get some exits, so once we sell some of our properties, our company's, you know, relatively young, and which is why we're so nimble. We're about two years old. But uh, once we start selling some properties. Wow. Okay. So let me jump into this for a second. So you guys have been at it for two years. And like, as I said in the introduction, like I, when you introduced yourself to me, you guys said you purchased over $200 million in, in property value over the previous 16 months. That's extremely impressive, especially you coming from the medical field. So like, how were you able to grow that business so quickly? How were you able to find... Um, all those investors so quick. So we were fortunate that we have this other brand called Passive Income MD that was created and founded by my partner, Dr. Peter Kim. 
And so we've been doing passive real estate for, you know, well over 10 years. Uh, we've created all these relationships with investors, with sponsors. And so, you know, even though Ascent is two years old, the our experience in the field is a lot longer. So that, you know, instead of starting at the start line, we started really at the 50 yard line. And uh, so it just felt like we were a lot quicker. But, you know, our two years is 10 years in the making. Absolutely. Well, that, that's so cool. I mean, I'm, I'm really impressed with everything that you've done. Um, if the audience wants to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to reach out? Yeah. So the I'm very easy to get a hold of. Uh, Pranay, P-R-A-N-A-Y at ascentequitygroup.com. That's my email. Uh, I answer it pretty much all the time. You could also go to ascentequitygroup.com. And sign up for our newsletter. You'll get access to all our deals. Um, later tonight, I am doing um, uh, an Ascent Live. It happens every couple of weeks. Um, you can get access to those. And we really try to come at it from a, a period of education where we're, we're trying to make everyone just smarter. We actually didn't talk about this, but we also teach a course on passive real estate. Uh, and... That actually came out way before we started Ascent Equity Group because we just we just wanted to teach people how to invest in these deals. And eventually people said, you know, now we learned all this stuff, but we still want to invest with you guys. So that's why we started Ascent Equity That's awesome. So for anybody listening, all this information will be in the show notes. Pranay, um, we want to sincerely thank you for coming on to our show, giving us a life or a glimpse into your life and, and into your business. And everyone else out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you do nothing else, just write down one action that you got from today and make sure to implement that in the next seven days. And please share it with somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode and we will catch you on the next one. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 